Hey, this is Mike from Theology on Mission Podcast, and this episode is being republished from 2019, pre-COVID, back in the day. Fitch and I sat down with Dr. Michael Gorman to talk about his book, Abiding Go, his missional theology, looking at the Gospel of John. I'm republishing this episode because Dr. Gorman is coming back to Northern in about six weeks to de- to deliver our annual Brady Theology and Mission Lectures. That is September 23rd and 24th. We would love to have you in person. If you can't make it in person, you can watch the lectures online. I'll drop the registration link in the show notes, and we hope you can make it. All right, friends. Thanks for listening. McDonald's coffee? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Maybe not. Well, so good to be back with you. So good to be back here at Northern Seminary. And I'd like to take a moment here to introduce our special guest, Professor uh, Michael Gorman. Uh, Mike has had an impact on my life. I don't even think you know this, Mike, but well, I, uh, reading Revelation was a big deal for me. This has uh, got to be seven years ago now, six, seven years ago. Uh, reading Revelation responsibly, it was just, uh, it brought together a lot of themes for me. Uh, in one book, and it made Revelation now one of the most important books in the New Testament for me in terms of teaching and leading a congregation. Mm-hmm. But you are a, um, you know, I should have this down, but you are a professor of, you are the Raymond Brown Professor of New Testament at St. Mary's in Baltimore. Is that right? That's exactly right. Or pretty close to being and, exactly right. And <laughs> Ecumenical Institute is located there as well. That's Correct. been a big part of your work. It has been, yeah. And, and just let me, I, I don't, I don't want to make a big deal out of this because I don't want to embarrass you. I know when people talk about my litany of accomplishments, which is... Yeah. Often short, it embarrasses me. But, anyways, um, well, inhabiting the cruciform God. Have you read that one, Mike? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a big one for me, yeah. and, and it influenced many of my students. I, by the way, if I keep going like this, we're never going to get to the actual podcast. Okay. So I better, I better rein it in. But um, I also want to recommend the death of the Messiah and the birth of the new covenant to uh, really think, rethink uh, atonement uh, biblically. And uh, Becoming the Gospel, that's like two years old now? Uh, 2015, so it's almost four years old. Wow, time flies. Uh, That has become a significant text for our contextual theology work here in the doctoral program. But it's also been a a really a big leap forward in bringing together Paul's ecclesiology with mission. Mm -hmm. So we are so grateful to have you here Mm -hmm. I'm grateful to be here and, and appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Yeah, and and uh, what we want to talk about is this book, Abide and Go. This is uh, came out in the summer. Um, it was uh, some lectures you did in, in Britain. Um, can we get right into the, the questions? Sure, yeah. Okay, uh, Mike, you pipe in anytime. I know I've been talking a lot. Hey, it's you're not, good. It's you're not good. too often. I get to be in the same room with this man. Oh, yeah. You and me both. (laughs) 
So, um, well, okay, so let's talk about the topic of missional theosis. Sure. Uh, the two dimensions of John, the gospel of John. Uh, and I think this is so important for for basically how we're trying to do discipleship and formation in our churches. Uh, but there's this the idea of theosis, participation in the triune God's life, and then mission. And often we have this struggle, I know I do in our churches, uh, between internal and external, or mm-hmm. formation of me as a person, which often turns internal, and, and yet we want to... F- shape people to be engaged in God's work in the world, and they seem to be at odds. How does missional theosis in the Gospel of John kind of engage that issue? I mean, maybe the first thing to say is just the title of the book is a bit odd, uh, but it captures that dynamic, abide and go. And that, that dynamic comes right out of John 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you're the branches, unless you abide in me, you can't bear fruit. And if you do abide in me, you will bear fruit. Well, then a little bit later, he says, uh, I have not, you have not chosen me, but I've choice, chosen you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, to go and bear fruit. So it's sort of that question, do you abide or do you go? And it seems to me that captures the heart of the question you were just raising about what is the relationship between the deep spiritual life of abiding in Christ and the missional life of of going. I mean, not not sitting still, but so and you have to keep those two together. So the the title of the book, Abide and Go, main title comes right from John. The language that I use, the more formal theological language I use to express that, is a term theosis that 99.9% of Protestants have never heard of, and lots of Catholics and even not Orthodox, but lots of Catholics haven't heard of. It's it's a term, as you were saying, that that means primarily participation in the life of God by which we are transformed. And over the course of the last 20 years, the term has come much ba- has come back a lot in, in theological circles in the last 10 years or so in, in biblical studies. But um, the, the, the idea of becoming like God, theosis, <clears throat> is often in the tradition been there, especially in the East, but also in the West. But the, the main idea has often been it's through contemplation or asceticism that we become more holy and more like yes. God. And the point I'm trying to make in the book and the point I think that John 15 and the rest of the gospel makes is, in fact, you become more like God, we become more like God individually and corporately when we participate in what God is doing in the world. Hence, hence missional theosis as opposed to, say, virtue theosis or ascetic theosis. How do, you, how do we become more like God? Or to put it in more traditional terms, how do we become more like Christ? Yeah. Some people actually use the word Christosis instead of theosis. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, uh, I can get so into this. Uh, my own denomination, Christian Missionary Alliance, has an emphasis on the deeper life. Mm-hmm. But then it's almost, and, and folks out there in CMA land, I'm not criticizing, but the way I was raised, it's almost like mission is a separate activity mm. once you get your act together. This way of talking about it and thinking through John helps us understand by participating in mission, God works and transforms our yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I have learned by 
tending to God's presence in the world and what he's doing, I am actually changed. Mm-hmm. But I have to have a concept of what he's doing. I, or I have to actually have a concept that he is doing, he is working, he is at work in the world. Does uh, John help us tune in in any way? Is there any uh, tips from John on how we can recognize God's work in the world and participate in God's work in the world? For yeah. pastors out there who are thinking, man, I need to preach through John chapter 15. Uh, is, there, is there any tips you can give us on that? Sure. I mean, I think at the, at the heart of the gospel of John is John chapter 13, the foot washing scene. Mm. And I mean, we could spend a long time just thinking about that. But one of the, I think, most important aspects of that is that there is a very clear text that says, love one another as I have loved you. So it sounds like foot washing is basically an internal, uh, if you will, communal way of taking care of one another, which it certainly is. But right there in the middle of chapter 13, it also says, Jesus also says, uh, no slave is greater than his master or her master, and no one who is sent is greater than the sent one. It becomes pretty clear when you start to unpack that, what the, the only occurrence of the word apostle, Greek apostolos, in the Gospel of John is right in that verse. So it's, Jesus is talking about us being in relationship to him, to use metaphorical language, as, as servant or slave to master, yeah. who, who has washed the feet, but also as apostle, to the sender, we're, we're, the, we're in that text, we the church are the apostolos, the one, the one or the ones being sent out by Jesus to do what he has done. So washing the feet of the disciples also for Jesus includes washing the feet of the world, even the enemy. So John tells us in John 13 that Jesus already knew what Judas was going to do and he washes his feet anyhow. Certainly, we can assume that he wouldn't be surprised that Peter was going to deny him, but he washes his feet anyhow. Hmm. So there's a lot of symbolism in that, that, that the foot washing is not just a, an early ordinance or sacrament. And it's not even just intended for the community. It's intended for the mission of being sent out. Hey, it's Mike again. Now is the time to apply to become a student at Northern Seminary. We're giving a $50 Amazon gift card to everybody who applies and is accepted. And we are also giving listeners of Theology and Mission podcast a free copy of Dave's new book, What is the Church and Why Does It Exist? So go to seminary.edu backslash apply. That's the letter T, the letter M, the word apply, theology, mission, apply. And you can schedule a time to talk with me or our admissions team. We'd love to have you at Northern learning with Fitch, McKnight, Nijay Gupta, Lynn Coick, our visiting professors like Drew Hart and Greg Boyd. So check out the show notes and you'll see uh, the links where you can apply and find out more information. All right, back to the conversation. So that would be, I would, that would be where that's I'd start. Great. I wouldn't end there, but I'd start there. Yeah, that's, that's a great place to start. Uh, Mike Moore, you've been a pastor all these years, uh, leading people out into mission without it becoming an internal, formational, yeah. uh, introverted thing. Yeah. What's the big challenge and how does this maybe help? Yeah. Yeah, I think what we found, um, <clears throat> excuse me, especially in planting churches, 
when we get past 50 people, we f- I f- it feels like we move from mission to more of an emphasis on spirituality or discipleship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I, I was wondering why why both these things, why are both these things necessary? You know, it, in your book, you write that you're marrying, you know, spirituality, theosis with um, mission. Mm-hmm. How, how, how do you marry both those things without it becoming just exhaustion or just going out in the world or just becoming um, an insular focus on a deeper spiritual journey? Yeah, how do you attain the balance, you mean? Yeah. 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 Well, I think that's, that's the $64 million question for all of us, um, maintaining the deep spiritual life and maintaining our, our presence in the world is both an individual and a corporate question that we all have to wrestle with. And it's, it's a tough one, no doubt about it. I think in the long run, the two are, have to be married because they're married in Jesus. They're married in the call of the gospel. You don't, you don't, uh, you don't, grow more like the God who sends his son into the world by simply burying yourself in a rabbit hole or as some people would say, a holy huddle or something like that. And that's not the nature of God to to be, I mean, God by nature is a community of, uh, or communion of, of love, but that love inherently is for other and it's for the other members of the Trinity and, and it's for the world. So, um, you know, Jesus went into mission, then he went up alone to pray. And, and so there, there has to be, sometimes they have to be separate, but they also have to be connect, connected and, and be balanced. And I think, I don't think there's any a simple answer to that question. It's one we all have to struggle with. Yeah. 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 Um, at the risk of turning to a more academic question, <clears throat> hopefully it has bearing for pastors as well, but in, uh, in in the intro or, or the I guess it's the uh, preface or what's it? yeah it's just the intro. Uh, you say, and I, I love this sentence. You say I acknowledge that a fully missional reading can only be done. You're talking about missional hermeneutics here. Mm-hmm. Can only be done in the context of the people of God on the ground, so to mm-hmm. speak, and. You know, we're we're dealing with missional hermeneutics here at Northern. Uh, you've been here teaching in the uh, doctoral program in contextual theology, and we've been discussing missional hermeneutics. But this this idea of a fully missional reading can only be done on the ground. Um, and you're kind of giving that as a kind of a preface, saying I haven't completely done this in the book, but right. still, can you flesh that out? What? How does on the ground reading shape how we do hermeneutics? Yeah. Well. I'll come back to John 13 to try to try to answer that. But yes. but before I do, let me say there's there's a this idea of missional hermeneutics or interpreting scripture with mission as its primary focus uh, is at least in terms of a technical term, missional hermeneutics or missional interpretation, relatively new, 10, 15 years old. But in terms of how this church has read scripture over the last 2,000 years. I think it goes, goes back to the beginning or even into the writing of scripture itself. So uh, if, if we say in the latter part of Isaiah, God's going to do a new exodus or a new creation, well, that's, that's God's mission in the world in light of 
rereading the story of, of the original Exodus or rereading the story of creation. So scripture itself, I think, reads itself missionally. And Paul, Jesus and Paul understand that the light, the call of Israel to be the light to the nations is also now a call to Jesus or to Paul and to the church. So um, reading scripture that way is inherently uh, biblical, so to speak. It's, it's part of the, the way the scripture reads itself. But to get specifically to um, what you were talking about, what you're asking, well, if we go back to, to John 13, um, well, let's stay with the, with the Isaiah. Isaiah is reading that, uh, a lot of part of Isaiah is reading earlier texts in light of new situations. Exile and after exile. Yes. Could you just repeat that one line because I think it's so yeah. important. A lot of reading Isaiah is applying the same text to new situations. Right. So when Isaiah talks of a new creation or a new exodus, Isaiah is speaking about a new situation in light of previous text, previous narrative yeah. of creation of exodus. When Jesus speaks about um, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he's anointed me to preach good news for the poor, this is his re reworking the text of Isaiah 61 in light of the new situation, which he has now been sent to fulfill that text. But it's going to look a little different than it, than it would. Its significance would be a little different than it was in the original setting of Isaiah 61. Paul's a different kind of light to the Gentiles or light to the nations than Israel was in, in a variety of ways. Anyhow, so if we go so to John. So can I just. Yeah, uh, sure, sure. So, so uh, what you're saying is it's not that we are like making things up. It's that new highlights, new emphasis, new things we didn't maybe see before that were there. Yeah. Come to light in a specific context on the ground that Precisely. wouldn't have come to light otherwise. Precisely. So if we go to our own situation, let's take John 13 again as an example. Um, to go to Mike's point, it seems to me that, Mike Moore's point, that is, uh, in a particular situation now, whether it's a new church plan or one that's got 50-plus people and we're beginning to look at deeper issues of discipleship, um, we, read that, we read John 13 together and we ask ourselves, what does it mean for us in this community, in this state, in this wherever nation, however big you want to draw the the circle in this neighborhood. What does it mean for us to to wash the feet, not only of us internally, but to wash the feet of our neighbors? What's the need? So identifying the need, identifying what it means to wash their feet in the name of Jesus takes the context. I mean, I, I think any any missiology already knows that, right. but, but applying it to scripture specifically, I think means we read that scripture with a fresh set of eyes. It doesn't, it doesn't change the basic quote unquote principle of washing feet, but what does it mean here in wherever here is to wash the feet, not only of us, but of our right. neighbor? Um, what does it mean to be light? What does it mean to be light to the Gentiles, to the neighbor in the neighborhood or the state or wherever we happen to be? You know, uh, uh, I find, uh, out there and in teaching at seminary like Northern Seminary, um, so many pastors are not aware that there's a contextual task in hermeneutics. Mm. 
um, this is this. I read the text. I did my exegesis. I was in my room with my fifty-two commentaries. I came up <laughs> with the with the one truth, and now I'm going to hammer on it. Boom, boom, boom. And how do we get people to think that no, there is actually a significant contextual issue here in interpretation? Do you struggle with with uh, teach you know working this out in your congregation? Yeah, yeah. I. I I had a great um, experience the last two weeks of traveling and visiting different churches. Um, and it was an example in, in opposites. Uh, I, I won't name the churches, but one church, it, uh, in terms of the proclamation of the word, in terms of preaching, it just sounded like it was out of a textbook. Mm. Um, and the other church, and they were proclaim, proclaiming the word in the worship service. It was interesting, the examples um, that the pastor used were mostly examples that were pertaining to that neighborhood or to that city. Um, and I, I was just wondering um, wh- where it is that they, um, well, the, the one woman who was preaching, who was talking about the neighborhood, um, where it is that she got the idea um, to talk about the neighborhood? Mm. Where was she shaped and formed? And where was the other pastor shaped and formed? Yeah. And I, I'm wondering, um, where do you where do you see this happening? Um, do you look at churches and you say, "Hey, that church right there is embodying a missional theosis"? Um, I, I know you reference in the book, you know, certain communities. Mm. Um, are there are there congregations that you have just discovered that are doing this? Are these um, pastors yeah. that you're running into in Baltimore? Um, where do you where are you finding? So it's a great question. I think it's. I think the church is good at being the church lots of times. So I'm not I'm not trying to be critical and yeah. I'm not trying and I'm not necessarily saying that this is so rare that we we are failing as the church. I think lots of Christian churches and lots of Christian entities are doing excellently in this yeah, regard. Yeah. So I'm not it's not the book is not a actually the if the book is polemical at all, it's primarily polemical against academic interpretations of John and we can mm-hmm. come back to that maybe. But mm. um the reason I, I highlighted several Christian communities in the book is that we often think that intense, intentional Christian community is going to be almost narcissistic, yeah, very yeah. focused on the self, mm. corporate self, individual self. And what I was trying to show, and, and so people often say, well, that's what the Gospel of John was about. You know, this community is being persecuted perhaps in and needs to turn in on itself, circle the wagons, and just focus on itself, wash one another's feet. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and what I'm trying to argue in the book is uh, that's precisely the wrong reading of John, precisely the wrong way to understand what that gospel was saying and reflecting. But in our own context, the reason I chose those particular communities was, like like the gospel of John's community, I think, they're intentional, intense, very deeply spiritual communities that also had a mission, an outwardly mission. I mean, I think distinguishing between inward and outward is good, but altogether the mission of God is to form a people that's prepared to work in the world. The formation of the people is still mission. Sorry. Mm -hmm. But um, in that particular scenario where you've got uh, – an intense community, it can also be hospitable. Yeah. It can also be active in the world. And one of the 
One of the examples I use is the Teze community right. in France. A lot of people have heard of their music, but most, many people, especially in the States, don't know that's a community of brothers that began in the 1940s to house with a very small number, one person and then a couple more, to house refugees during the Second World War. And then now it has expanded to 100 plus brothers. People come from all over the world to have a week of young people, especially to have a week of intense spirituality and preparation for mission. The Teze brothers uh, go all over the world uh, to work for reconciliation, uh, both within mm. the church and more broadly. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's one of the many examples that I. I mean, I mean, the many, but many examples I know of, one of the several that I wrote about in the book that show this, how intentional, intense community can also be involved in the world. Yeah. So again, the book is titled Abide and Go, Missional Theosis in the Gospel of John by Michael Gorman. Um, we're running out of time, but I have one last question I got to sure. ask you. Um, you talk a little bit about colonialism, you know. And, and the fact that a lot of people assume or associate mission with intolerant, totalizing meta-narratives hmm. or other, you know, the colonialist thing. And so um, you say participation in the life and activity of the triune God does not underwrite such colonizing and controlling of human bodies and minds. Uh, so yeah, there is this hangover, I'll call it the Christendom hangover of of the use of coercion and mission. How does abide and go, missional theosis, how does that um, answer this problem of colonialization and mission? Can you just speak to that? Because by the way, folks, there, could there be a more um, a pro, you know, um, yeah. opportune moment for this book, uh, for you to pick up this book, read this book, preach through John in your churches, because so many of these issues are key if we're going to form communities for mission. But this is the last one. How does this missional theosis um, kind of solve the problem of colonialization and mission that's yeah. so inherent in Christendom? I have, I could talk to that for a long time, but I'm going to go back to John 13 since we've already been talking about John 13. A number of, of people have said the, that John 13 is the self-exegesis of God in the Gospel of John. It's God's self-interpretation of what it means to be God. Hmm. It's not just about Jesus. It certainly is about Jesus and what, what kind of servant he was, what kind of Lord he was, what kind of glory he exemplified. But if, if John 13 is the self-interpretation of the divine character and the divine activity in the world, of God's own character and activity, then when we participate in that, I mean, foot washing is the activity of the servant, not of the oppressor, not of the Lord. This is the activity of someone who's willing to be uh, at the lowest point rather than at the highest point. And so, the idea of, of coercion or mistreatment of peoples or forced conversion or or even the, the sense that we're on top and, and we're going to be the uh, deciders of your future and culturally and theologically and every, every other way. Just, I think that scene blows that away. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, 
within my own church context, my own history and white evangelicalism. Uh, we did evangelism through all these various means that are, I guess you could call them, depending on, I don't want to get too overboard on this, but was there coercion involved? And a lot of us felt like when we were teenagers going out doing evangelism mm -hmm. explosion, we were thinking, oh man, this feels odd. And so there's this hangover effect. I'm going to go in and I'm going to convince somebody they're going to hell and I'm going to, you know, persuade them to follow Jesus and receive forgiveness. And I've learned by recognizing that God's at work in the world, I'm just participating in what he's doing. And so I can go and be present in any place and tend to his presence in the work and what in, in the life of this individual. And I can just cooperate and I can mm -hmm. just say, Oh, I think I just saw this. Oh, I think that's Jesus. Do you see it? And, and there's a total non, all the coercion is taken out of it. And I think your book just so helps in the angst of, of uh, post-Christendom evangelicalism that says we got to go out and change the world, and it's got to be us that do it. Hmm. Thanks for writing this book. Well, thank Mike. you for having me. Thanks for the conversation. It's, yeah, I, and I Abide and Go is the name of the book. We're going to have it on the show notes in terms of the uh, mm -hmm. link to the Amazon site where you can yeah. buy the book. Um and we highly, it goes without saying, we highly, highly recommend it. Yes. I mean, Mike, I mean, nothing is more important than getting a recommendation from you. <laughs> <laughs> I recommend this book. <laughs> Thank there you, we Mike. Go. So, folks, it's been good to be with you again. This is our first podcast of 2019. We look forward to uh, the whole year, forthcoming new podcasts. Um, Doctor of Contextual Theology program, which we've talked a little bit about.